You are listening to WFMU. This is Too Much Information. My name is Benjamin Walker. It's good to be back. I have a very photo, image-heavy show today. Uh, two guests, the photographer Ivan Siegel is going to be coming on about halfway through the program to talk about his White Road project, photographing in Central Asia, all the stands, Russia, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Afghanistan. But first, we're going to start off with Fred Richin, who's a professor of photography and imaging at NYU, where he also co-directs the photography and human rights program. Fred's authored a number of books about photography, including In Our Own Image and After Photography. Both very, very good on the theory and practice. He's been a guest on the program before, but he has a new book called Bending the Frame, and it's published by Aperture. And it's great. So I thought we'd just uh, have him on again. Hey, Fred, are you there? Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So you've been tracing the evolution of photography as it enters the digital age for quite some time now. Like I just mentioned, we've had you on the program talking about that, but now it seems that you're asking a very different kind of question. It's not where we're going, but rather, wh- where do we want to go? What do we want from this media revolution? How did you exactly. come... Exactly. It's, it's rather than possibly watch the revolution, we really have to make a revolution. And the question is... You know, where do we want to go with all this technology? What do we want to do with it? Not just what's being done to us, but where, where, where do we want to go? And how did you come to focus on, on this question? And, and why do you think it's one we should or, or even can answer? Well, I, I think we have to answer it. I think it's really the you know, survival of the planet, which is at stake in terms of, you know, there's issues like climate change. There's all kinds of issues going on. And if we believe in media to be able to do anything positive, we have to use it in the right ways. So, you know, we do complain a lot as people. We say that, you know, the media doesn't do its job, it doesn't do this, it doesn't do that. But, you know, what is our substitute? What's the alternative that we're creating? And you have to say, you know, 20, 30 years ago, people would complain they wouldn't publish me, there's no room for my work, and so on. And now everybody can be a publisher and is a publisher quite easily. But what are we doing with all these, you know, billions and billions of images? Yeah. You know, you, you talk to a lot of photographers in the book, and, and, and I think this question sort of looms over the whole thing. But Martin Parr, one of the world's like, you know, greatest living photographers, he seems to tell you that the only way to do important work that's important to society is to disguise it as entertainment. And, you know, he seems in a position to know what he's talking about. Well, that, that, that's frightening. That's really frightening. To me, the metaphor really is the sense that if something was happening in your neighborhood, if there's flooding, if there were problems, you would want to respond. You, you don't need it disguised as entertainment. And if we start looking at the world as our own neighborhood and, and try to intervene in, 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 in the ways that might be helpful, you know, that, that's really the obligation of a citizen. To me, that's really what citizen journalism means underneath is not just making more and more images, which is fine, but also trying to intervene as a citizen and say we've got to do something. We, we just can't leave it up to the politicians and so on you know, to make decisions for us. We have to be the people with foresight. Uh, many of us know more than, than the politicians do, and we have to get our voices out there. So we, it, it's not just about entertainment. It's really about you know, taking control and, and trying to push things in directions that we feel comfortable with. Sure, sure. But as much as you know, your book may be uh, another answer to Martin Parr's, it doesn't seem like you're in entirely in disagreement with you know his assessment and maybe even his strategy. No, no, I, I do think that much of media is uh, entertainment at this point. They, they make images that that kind of confirm to certain roles. You know, poor people look passive and victimized. Celebrities look powerful and uh, and glamorous on top of the world. But it's, we're just confirming stereotypes. We're not really breaking new ground. And, and to me, it's, it's, it's a disservice to people to view them as just, you know, like children who have to be entertained, like it's a party with, with media. We, you know, people are much more serious and much more concerned than that. Just look at the voting and, and the way, you know, that people are making choices. That There is an enormous concern about the future. So it's not just entertainment. I think that's the meaning. 
Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I don't, I mean, your book is not just an, uh, uh, a response to Martin Parr saying that he's wrong. I mean, you really seem to, to outline other options that are available to photographers, and I, I love the way you put this, who don't want to contribute to the pursuit of branding of things, people, and institutions, you know, rather folks who would like to be of service to society. So I, I, I definitely want to, to spend some time talking about some of those. Well, yeah, the first chapter is called The Useful Photographer. And to me, a photographer is useful to society is about as good as it gets because you're you're being helpful. It's kind of like a doctor or a social worker, a teacher. You know, it's not all about branding. If you're a good teacher, it's really can you teach and can a photographer do something to be helpful and useful? So I ask questions, for example, instead of waiting for the apocalypse and making spectacular images, can we prevent uh, disasters? Can we minimize disasters? Can we reduce them? in any way. So what would a proactive photography be? And, and I talk about the issue of you know, why do we have you know, hundreds and hundreds of war photographers and books about war photography, but if you mention the idea of, you know, I want to be a peace photographer, we don't even know what that means. There's no books on it. There's no exhibitions of it. There's no role in it. And, and I'm asking the question, with all this new technology, we can do what we want, and what would we want to do in terms of being proactive, you know, and maybe even being a, a peace photographer? What yeah. would that be? Yeah, you know, and let's. Let, why don't you talk about the the climate change project? Because if you if you if we were going to throw the word proactive out there, there's certainly one that you know that's in the headlines, you know, all the time right now. But you talk about a particular project using a lot of cameras trained at glaciers. Right, that's the extreme ice survey by Jim Baylog. And he's trained as an environmentalist, a mountaineer, and, and what he's done is he's put cameras in areas of glaciers, you know, very, very cold places, and they're timed to go off, uh, you know, every 30 minutes, every hour through the course of the year, which is the first time that scientists can actually see the, what's happening with the melting of the glaciers, that they could track it, and, you know, we can, all, we can see it as well. And so that way, it's not just about ego, it's not just about my great pictures of glaciers, but it's, it's really about trying to do a service so that the, the cameras themselves you know, are telling us the story of climate change, so we, we actually know and can see what's going on, which, which I think is an extraordinary effort you know, to be helpful, and, and exactly the kinds of efforts that we need. Yeah, but you know, when we th think about like reactive images, you know, this is when we talk about powerful images throughout the last century, that those are the they're all reactive images. I mean, what would the power of a proactive image be? Well, I, you know, I, I, I think like we did a project with Iraqi civilians photographing their own society. You know, they were given cameras, disposable cameras to the Daylight Foundation. It was a very, very inexpensive project to do, but the nice thing was to see that you know, they went to the dentist, they went to school, they, they, they were just like us. They just had normal daily lives. The conventional media shows them, you know, filled with explosions and, and craziness and incoherence, and it makes it easy to bomb, you know, to, to, to view other people like that as enemies when they're rendered as incoherent, as irrational. And I think a proactive imagery, you know, for example, in that case, or in the case of Iran today, would be, you know, what, what is a society about? Who are these people? They're not what the media makes them to be. It's, it's, it's not, they're not our enemies. They're just people. And something like that, I think, put the brakes on a more aggressive foreign policy. It starts to say, whoa, you know, these are just people. So, you know, don't, don't make them out to be more than they are or worse than they are. And, and I think there's lots and lots of examples and lots of ways of doing it. And I also think that the old models of the great civil rights photographs, the great photographs from Vietnam, don't necessarily work today, because if you look at Afghanistan, the longest war in American history, there is no iconic imagery from Afghanistan, you know, in, in more than a decade of a war. And the question is, why? And if there's, we can't make those iconic images anymore, people don't respond to images, there's the problem of embedding photographers, then we need new strategies to show what's going on. And, it, you know, the, again, the digital revolution gives us enormous technologies uh, to, to make new strategies with. Instead of, you know, often in photography we say if we could only be like Robert Kappa, like Dorothea Lange in the 1930s, we're great, but there's no other medium. You know, filmmakers, novelists, don't try to be like the 1930s. So the question here in documentary photography is, you know, what can we do differently? 
Yeah, yeah, but you know, it's also a question of the power of the image itself. You know, you just brought up that there doesn't seem to be an iconic image. And one of the stories you talk about is the Osama bin Laden death photo, which the government did not release, which becomes, in a weird way, almost where it's getting its power from. And, and, and I, I wanted to ask you more about that. What does this sort of non-existent photo have to tell us about the power of images today? Well, it's interesting. At a time where there's billions and billions of images online, they say that every two minutes we're making the same number of images that were made in the entire 19th century. The government refused to release the images of Osama bin Laden after he was assassinated. And they gave two reasons. One was because they didn't want to further inflame the Muslim world. And the second one was because it's just a photograph, and photographs can be so easily disbelieved. People could think that they've been compositive. They might think it's manipulated. It's too easy at this point to composite an image, to fabricate an image. So there you have the problem of you know all these years in which the industry has done very, very little to protect the credibility of, of the works being done. We're now at the point where why even bother releasing an image because people may disbelieve it in any case. Of course, that therefore makes it difficult for iconic imagery to have the same resonance that they did as, for example, the girl being napalmed in Vietnam when nobody would have thought or almost nobody would have thought that it would have been fabricated at that point. So we're in a different place, and that's why I argue that at this point, photography is much more rhetorical, like words. It's a point of view. It's an opinion. It's not, you know, fact at this point automatically. And so it requires new strategies. And, and that's really what the book is about. Yeah, yeah. But sticking with, you know, this, these, these war images here, another story you tell us about, which, you know, I guess that question of like, well, what, not releasing the Osama bin Laden photo in the extra resonant power that it comes with is, is something like so fascinating to think about. But you cite another story, which I, I hadn't heard before, which was uh, uh, came out around 2004 when a man named Chris Wilson created a site called Now That's Effed Up, can't even say that on the radio.com, where he was getting American soldiers to barter gore pictures, you know, pictures from the, the battlefield or, you know, uh, uh, unintended casualties for... Uh, porn. And what, what, when you talk about this story, you cite one of the soldiers is believing that these photos could be helpful to society and that they could act as deterrents. Whereas it seems until this moment, you know, society's always wanted to keep hidden images of the brutality of war, you know, for feelings of shame, guilt, or just plain public relations management. But, that, you know, there does seem to be this emerging new attitude that, you know, there's almost this pride or, or the sense of usefulness of the photos of the destruction of, of our enemies. Yeah, but I think, I agree with you, but I think there it's more like a family album. These are soldiers who've seen a lot, they've been through a lot, they may have the images on their portable devices, they may, you know, share them with each other. But these are really kind of private family albums. So the argument here is that the sort of more public imagery, you know, which, which is to some extent filtered and constricted in terms of what you can show, you know, we, can't, we couldn't show for many years coffins of dead soldiers coming back to the U.S. That was against the, the regulations of, of the government. You know, all these other images do exist. And, uh, and if somehow we can figure out you know, how to extend the family album to share it and to see the more personal experiences of people, I think there's greater credibility because people are saying, this is what I saw personally, this is what I lived through personally, and people tend to believe that much more than the official government statements or, or official media statements. So I think that's an enormous archive of, of possibility in terms of, you know, letting us know much more about the world, both in terms of war in terms of climate change, in terms of all you know, gun violence, in terms of all kinds of issues, it's often the personal imagery, which is kind of like a diary, which has the most resonance. Yeah, our guest today is Fred Richin. His new book is called Bending the Frame. It's published by Aperture, and we're talking about uh, the future of photography. Now, Fred, you teach, you lecture, you work a lot with photographers who want to take meaningful pictures. But you cite this one student, uh, and I think this happened a few years ago, who asked you something, and it seemed to really get at the heart of the problem. He asked you, how do I take a photo to change my government? <laughs> 
Um, could you tell us more about this story and, and what is what what would the answer to be to that question now? Well, that's actually the question that's obsessed me for decades. It was I was in Argentina in uh, I think it was in '89, and I was teaching a workshop with with there were ten of us teaching uh, 53 press photographers from Chile, Argentina, Brazil, and Uruguay. And one of the photographers from Chile asked this question after I gave a long uh, presentation about different kinds of uses of images, and he was responding to the Eddie Adams image of the Viet Cong being assassinated, shot through the head in the, during the Vietnam War, and the fact that you know many people protested, and 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 it, it did a lot to uh, stir up society in terms of you know is this the kind of war we want to be involved in, and he said how can I make such an image for my society. And obviously, you know, how do you make such an image? You know, Eddie Adams himself disagreed with the way his image was used as an anti-war uh, vehicle. He was much more uh, sympathetic to the the, the, the the soldier who did the shooting. He thought to a certain extent he was justified. So it, it's often these things are somewhat accidental. You know, the Abu Ghraib pictures, for example, were certainly not intended as anti-war statements, but they resonated in that way. So, you know, the book is asking these questions, and, you know, nobody knows how do you, you know, which actual incident is going to resonate in that way. We know that during Occupy Wall Street there were, you know, people concentrating on police and photographing police, making video of police in case they, there was brutality. And they figured correctly that if those images got out, there would be more sympathy for Occupy Wall Street. So there are limited strategies like that, but I'm also talking about much more, you know, proactive strategies um, in which, in, in which, like you know, Jr. for example, who does Inside Out or, or the different projects that he's worked on, where he's trying uh, very specifically to target certain individuals in society, to raise certain issues in society, and again with a, a certain amount of success, he's done it. And what one I talk about is is the project Women Are Heroes, in which he photographs and makes mural-sized images of very poor women in, in countries around the world. And in one, he began in Kenya to, to not only photograph them, but to print the images on semi-waterproof papers so that he would then put it on the roofs of their houses so that when it rained, he also protected them from the rain. So it had multiple uses. It, it signified you know, that they are heroic in what they do, that they're under-recognized in what they do, and he also made the image have a secondary use, which is actually to be protective. So, so people do come up with these kinds of strategies yeah. all over the place, and and you know that's exactly what I think has to happen more and more. Yeah, and the, you know there are a large number of of projects you talk about and introduce us to uh, in the book. One that really jumped out at me that I wasn't familiar with was a project by a woman named Lori Joe Reynolds on Supermax prisons. Can you can you talk a little bit about that one and what you feel that has to offer uh, in 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 relation to these questions you're asking? Well, the, since the prisoners don't get to go outside, they don't get to see outside, and since they're being held in in maximum security prisons which goes against certain humanitarian law, the, the, the issue here was to ask them what would they like to see, because they're isolated, they're locked up. Some wanted to see what's, what does it look like outside the prison, and they would photograph it and, and you know, bring back the photographs. Some would want to see, you know, what does it look like on the block I used to live on, or, or you know, show me a mosque, or, or, you know, show me a certain kind of car, or whatever it would be, and it would be a link to the outside. And I think what she was doing what uh, was saying that these people are being treated to the extent where they have no link anymore to the outside world, it, it's inhuman at, at a certain level. And because of what she did and because the organization she worked with, you know, one of the supermax prisons, in fact, was recently shut down. And so I think, again, that that's an innovative way to say, look how, how deprived these people are, you know, and, and we can show that by the fact that they can't even see what's outside the building that they're, you know, living in for years. Yeah, yeah. You know, a number of the projects you talk about, and you, you brought one of them up earlier uh, a few minutes ago when we were talking about the the uh, children taking photos of their own neighborhood, going to the dentist. But it does seem that we've reached a moment where the idea of getting subjects to tell their own stories has become a question of, of 
the art itself rather than resources or infrastructure. I mean, and this seems really recent, right? It seems that until a very few years ago, all of these projects were about where do you get the money to buy the cameras, where they're going to come out, you know. But if we just had a little bit of money, we could get a community up and running with a website and, you know, taking digital images in, in, in a couple of hours. And it seems that, you know, that we're able to advance the conversations about what the potential might be. You talk about... And I, I love this one about a photographer who was working in Ethiopia and what he learned just really almost immediately working with these kids and the idea of double exposures. Well, it was Eric Gottesman, and, and he was working in Ethiopia, and the question was initially that people there who are HIV positive suffered a great deal of discrimination. They, they could get kicked out of their housing and, and so on. So when he photographed them, he had to immediately show them the image because if they were recognizable, he would then rip it up. So he used Polaroid film at that point. And then he worked with kids uh, whose parents had been were HIV positive and gave them cameras. And then, you know, his point, which I think is an excellent point, is that instead of directing it, he let the kids make the kinds of images that they wanted to make and you know, to, for the reasons in, in their own mind that they wanted to make the images. So he didn't edit their images. He didn't direct their images, as so many people do working with kids. But he let them take it where it wanted to go. And he was surprised in, in a very good way to find that the kind of images that they made, because these are images that he never even considered. It wasn't in his vocabulary of image making. There was something very, in his opinion, very Ethiopian going on that was able to emerge. It, it didn't meet a kind of a Western idea of what an image should look like you know, at that point. Uh, there. But, you know, there are many, many such projects of uh, working with kids, working with adults in, in, in different societies. One that I like very much in Geneva, there is a project where people who are disabled would photograph the different obstacles in, in the city to let each other know, and they would GPS it so people could see where it was, that you can't go up this ramp, you can't go up this staircase, if you're in a wheelchair or whatever the issue would be, they would alert each other to the obstacles. They would create their own kind of mapping of, of where they live, and they would take it into their own hands instead of depending upon the city or, or someone else to, to tell them about it. So I think there's many, many ways that people uh, using cameras can, can alert each other, can help each other, uh, and I think we're at the very beginning of it all. Sure, sure, sure. But, you know, you, you, you point out time and time again that it's not just images, it's also attention. And you cite, you know, something that uh, Linda Pullman wrote in, as recently as 2010, talking about some communities still aware that in order to get the world's attention, there are certain images that, that could be required? I mean, almost echoing Martin Parr in a terrifying way. Well, I mean, the, the terrifying thing there was that they asked former, you know, there was a civil war that was running down in, in Africa, and they asked some of the leaders, you know, why did you cut off the hands of, of people using machetes? And they said, we did it for you. And then she said, you know, they asked, what do you mean you did it for us? And, and, and they said, because otherwise your TV people, your photographers would have nothing to photograph. You wouldn't pay attention to us. You wouldn't give us aid. You wouldn't intervene. And what's happening more and more now is that the, the so-called subjects of all these images know how to manipulate uh, the images that are being made. And they, they themselves have their own media campaigns. You know, it's not always explicit in to in terms of getting what they want to get from the photographers looking at them. So sometimes the photographers become, to some extent, dupes in, in the entire process. It's, it's, I think, wrong to think that the you know, photographers know what they're doing and they're so, they know what's going on all the time. It's impossible. And, and sometimes they're being pushed just the way photo opportunities by a celebrity, by a politician are being used you know, to show that a certain politician is friendly with factory workers. You know, he puts his arm around the factory worker that he met two minutes before. He's photographed, and there he goes for his campaign. And I think the responsibility of the photographer is then to say, take a second image from the side or some other angle to show how set up this is, how manipulated yeah. this is, and to run both images, you know, perhaps one on top of the other online, so people can say that this is not authentic, can see that it's not authentic. And as a result, you know, we'll have fewer stage images, photo opportunities by, by anybody. Yeah, and, and I just want to point out, as, as futuristic as that sounds, like one of the great things about this book is that you're talking about projects who are, and photographers who are trying out these very ideas. 
Well, I think the great thing, I mean, the, the kind of paradox now is that photographers and strategies that felt marginalized in the last two or three decades are now mainstream. You know, the people who are kind of innovating and independent and doing their own kind of work, you know, not working for mainstream media, not doing the conventional stuff, have now become, in fact, the mainstream because the conventional uh, image making doesn't doesn't work the same way. The Chicago Sun Times just you know got rid of their entire photo staff in one day. They don't need photographers. They say it's impossible. I think to think of doing that with writers or or, or you know some other group of people. They're just giving iPhones to reporters as of now. So the photographers, you know, have to be more, in my opinion, you know, more, almost more like a filmmaker, you know, a, a director. Like they have to author their own images. They have to contextualize them. They have to run series of them. You know, I suggest that they they hide in the, in the four corners of the image different kinds of image, uh, different kinds of information that the reader can then you know roll over with a mouse and find out. They have to go much further than just taking a nice looking image, but they have to author a. a imagery so that it has a point of view it has a context and it's it it's impossible just to to use it in multiple ways it it, it has a certain statement that it's trying to make yeah yeah but again you know there are so many amazing projects in the book that you introduce us to and you know i i, I kind of want to ask you this because as someone who's interested in photography someone who actively seeks out work like this you know to the point where i like to fund interesting sounding photography projects on on kickstarter i still there were so many in this book that i had not heard of that it somehow escaped right before my eye i was reminded that we are living in a moment where it is extremely difficult to find an audience for stuff like this i i mean you know just quickly, you know, where do folks go looking for these kinds of new and innovative acts of photography? Well, I think that's why we need a new front page. I, I think that it, you know, people don't want to pay anymore for conventional media for the older front pages. But we need some new front pages that are there that say these are extraordinary projects, these are extraordinary issues, you need to know about these things going on in the world, come here and we'll show it to you. Because I, too, was surprised, you know, in doing the research for this book, I would find project after project I'd never heard of, uh -huh. you know, but somehow were there, and, you know, somebody had to do the research and figure it out. And the fact that, you know, I could show my students, for example, at the universities, projects, and 90% and of them they probably would not have seen, because there's no front page, there's no easy access to it. We haven't, as a community, gotten together and said, okay, we're going to curate ourselves, and, and these are some of the great things that you have to look at, which is why in the book I, I push for what I call meta-photography more than just the photography. The meta-photography is basically filtering and curating you know, from all the extraordinary images out there saying these are ones we really have to start looking at because they're so important, they're, they're so interesting, they're so intriguing. It's necessary. Yeah, well, let's let's wrap up here, but I want to come back to your main question because this this question of where do we want to go? Because there's another public lecture you talk about in your book. This is some photographers presenting some work they did in Iraq uh, on the battlefield, and a woman, a young woman, asked them from the audience, you know, how will these or will these photos be helpful to Iraqis in the future? And you point out that they just have no idea how to even deal with that question and and it seems that without being able to answer that question we're not going to be really able to find our way to these kinds of new ways of taking images no you're exactly right i mean it was you know these were extraordinary photographers making important images of the war itself but the person in the audience was asking now that you know iraq has a chance of peace you know, will all these images of violence actually further inflame people, or can they help make yeah. peace? And the photographers hadn't thought about that. So, again, that gets back to the idea of what might a peace photography be, a photography of peace. And I think it's one that takes into account the fact that, you know, all these volatile images, something has to be done with them in transitional justice, for example, they... They deal a lot with archives of imagery in, in Peru and in, in Guatemala and different places, and then they bring out the images as a form of healing so people can see what's been done to them. They can look at it and say, we don't want to do that ever again. You know, war is not worth it. Conflict is not worth it. So images can be used in that way. You take the Holocaust Museum and, and so on. They, they use images in those ways. 
But I think, again, we have to, you know, think uh, in a more visionary way and say, okay, there's all these extraordinary images. You know, take the Voting Rights Act, uh, the Supreme Court decision uh, just now. You know, there's extraordinary images of what people marching, people demonstrating, people needing these, you know, these kinds of laws. You know, how do we use that archive of imagery to bring out the issues again instead of just always making new images? How do we use the past? How do we use these other images in concerted ways that you know, can be constructive? And I think we need a lot more thinking in, in those directions. Well, Fred, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I hope to have you on again soon. Uh, the new book is called Bending the Frame. Thanks so much. It's always a pleasure. You can find a link to Fred Richen's book on the TMI playlist page. And our Andrea Salenzi just put up a link to our next guest's work as well. Ivan Siegel is the executive director of Global Voices, a nonprofit online global citizens media initiative. Previously, he's been a senior fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace. He spent over 10 years working in media development in the former Soviet Union and Asia, supporting and training journalists and working on media co-productions and also working as a photographer. In fact, most of that time was spent working on one project, giant project he calls White Road, which is what he's joining us now to talk about. Welcome to WFMU, Ivan. Thank you. All right, we're there, we're connected. Um, so this project, White Road, has just been published by one of the best publishers in photography, Steidel Books, but it's a double package. It is a book of images and a, a companion book of text. So, so what, what's up with that? Why, why two books? Well, you know, it's hard to read on the subway. <laughs> it is. It's most, most books that have text, most photography books that have text in them, uh, uh, find, you find that the text is uh, ancillary to the main, the main work, and uh, it, it really, very rarely gets read. And so... I wanted uh, the text and the photos to be treated as separate objects so that you could encounter them both as, in, as individual bodies of work but also to think differently about the, the way that the text and the words interact because the narrative in the, in, the, in the text side is not simply a set of captions or a journal or a diary. It's a set of essays that are... Um, kind of concurrent with but also quite different from the photograph. Sure, sure, but you know, I it's hard to read on the couch as well cuz you know these books like many uh photo books today are are are, are large, but you know that it seems having both books open at the same time I could just immediately was able to make or found amazing connections between some of the 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 writing and the images. But but how are they supposed to work together? Well, I mean, I was actually thinking a lot about the ergonomics of it when I designed it. So the the textbook is a is a um, portrait format, and you can it's light enough that you can hold it in one hand. And the the photo book is um, it's 370 some pages, and it's landscape format, so substantial. So you can actually manage them together. Uh, uh, I I was hoping, or what I would like people to do when they read the book is to is to find um, echoes of one in the other. And so there are many photographs for which there is also a description of the same event in the text, but mm -hmm. the event is described in a way that is different from the image itself. But there's also many images with no description and many descriptions with no image. And so together you find a, a kind of an interesting tension of wondering whether the thing that you've seen is also the thing that you've read. Yeah. And it kind of challenges your idea of memory and the way that memory relates to image and the way that we create images with words and also the way that we absorb and understand images that are in photographs, that are photographs. I, I feel we just jumped to the, 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 the higher level here, so we, I think we should back up. Our, okay. our guest <laughs> here is Ivan Siegel, who is a photographer and author of the book White Road. Let's just talk about the project, how it starts. As I mentioned in the intro, you've worked on this for years how did this start? What did you set out to do when you went to Russia to make uh, to photographs? Uh, I originally went to Russia. I moved to Moscow in 1996, and I originally went to photograph landscape. And I went to think about uh, how different social and political and economic changes might 
changed the way that the post-Soviet society built itself. And uh, I realized pretty quickly that that was a very complicated question, but that uh, it didn't necessarily lend itself to uh, an easy pictorial representation. Why not? Like, can you think of, can you, is there like an image that you were looking at, like, okay, this, I, this is not going to work? Well, it was more like an idea. I had a very strong idea in my head, but the way that I found the way that I make images is more by looking first and then thinking about how meaning accrues to that idea and that image and then building layers of layers of images together that sort of had relate to one another so i moved to central asia in 1999 and i started uh i started traveling and and working with local media and just photographing a lot a lot and over time the what i developed was a, a narrative process of in which i would find fragments or short aspects of narrative that i could that i could link together in, in a series and those worked together um, as the project developed to kind of mimic the function of memory. So you would read a passage, you would see a passage of images, then you'd leave it, and then you'd come to, and then you'd return to the same character later in the book, and you'd think, well, I think I've seen that somewhere before, yeah. but what's the relationship? And so it became that um, taking pictures was a way of exploring a set of questions rather than um, producing a set of answers. And that's quite different from a typical, say, photojournalistic approach to image making in which you have a very sp explicit caption, you have an explicit, usually, usually social or economic or political goal with the image, and you're trying to show something very concrete, and so the image has, has an answer to it, it has a, a kind of a blunt quality to it. And I was trying to make images that made you ask questions and explore the way the images were made themselves. Sure, I guess one of the connections for us as looking at them, though, is how are they connected? And uh, especially since it's in one region, it seems that you're taking us. You know, obviously, there's a lot of travel involved, and we'll come back to the specifics of that in a moment. But uh, can you talk about the White Road, that the title you give to this, which connects yeah. many of these places? So, so White Road is an expression in Kazakh, it's Akshol, it's an expression that you find at the edge of uh, towns and cities, and it means, it means safe journeys. It's not, that's not, the literal translation is white road, but the, the metaphoric is safe journeys or take care. And so the purpose of, of it in this case is to, is to be a sort of a signifier for an endless journey or a journey into, into the unknown and in which you often find yourself in Central Asia in a, in a landscape that's vast and and you have cities that are separated from one from another by thousands of kilometers sometimes, and there's very little in between. And so you enter, a, you leave a town, and you go into the steppe or into the desert, and there's mm -hmm. nothing for a hundred miles. And so this, these words have acquire a kind of weight because you don't, you're you're leaving a, a kind of a, a, a more of a bound space into something that's more open, mm -hmm. and uh, and it's it's a, a way of of. Um, kind of putting that, that idea forward as a, as a narrative structure. So you started off with something a little more concrete, this idea that, that you, know, you eventually abandoned, but how did you know, and again, you worked on this for years, how did you know when you're like, okay, uh, I, I have to, th this has some borders to it since it is sort of this circular journey, you, you, you're, uh, you're going from place to place. I mean, you just used the word never-ending mm -hmm. uh, a few minutes ago. How yeah. did you know when you were done? Um, I knew I was done when I had uh, I had a really clear sense of the kind of topics that I wanted to shoot and the the areas that I wanted to shoot. And when I was able to to think about um, the kind of metaphors that we use for describing travel, and to realize that a lot of the language that we use when we talk about um, journeys is is actually um, how would I describe it? It's it. Things like uh, like the the typical colonial era journal, uh, travels that you see, where people leave home and they go into uh, into another country that's an other, and then they record it and they return home, and then they show the they they produce a document which is an explanation of the other. And I realized with this book that um, that I was able to put a kind of a, a a finishing note to it when I was able to describe for myself that. I was participating in something that was actually a very well-worn literary form and that making it clear that, that was and acknowledging that that was a form. So I know that sounds a little abstract, but um, I be, it became clear that the idea of, 
of uh, kind of creating an endless journey was itself uh, a trick. It was itself a, um, a kind of a, an aesthetic yeah, form, yeah. if that makes any sense. And then I was able to say, I can, I can encapsulate this, I can put an end to it um, as a story. But knowing at the same time that all stories continue once, once the photographer has left or once the storyteller has left, and just being able to say, this is a break point. So there's a few end paper uh, uh, with some, you know, maps that separate some of the regions. But, you know, for the average uh, uh, viewer like myself, I, I'm not going to really understand what they are. But are they sort of separating out chapters or places? They're separating out uh, places and chapters. And there is an index in the book that, uh, that makes it clear, if you look at it, that yes. each, one, each one is different. The maps themselves are old Soviet-era military maps that um, I photographed. And uh, they mainly stand in as a, as a break point between space, just to, to give you a breathing point between, between each chapter. Yeah. So travel is so key to this project. And you had a job that took you to most of these places. Uh, you did a lot of traveling. Can you talk about that and how that helped this project or did it get in the way of it because you had other work to do? Mm -hmm. um, I think it helped it a lot because it, I was working with local television and radio stations and internet projects. So a lot of local uh, television production and uh, designing uh, projects and training journalists and helping, to helping people to own and control their own media outlets. And that put me in contact with a lot of local journalists and a lot of local um, communities. So I was very, uh, it enabled me to get to know people very quickly, to go to a city and to have colleagues. And so that I wasn't a tourist, I was there for work and I was, and I was entering into people's yeah. lives. You know, like, and, yeah. go, sorry, go ahead. And that really helped a lot. The second mm -hmm. thing that helped is that I think Time, passage of time is very important to this project. So I, I photographed it over eight years, and uh, the structure of it is such that you, I feel like, or I hope that you can feel time passing as you go through the, the whole project. Sure, sure. And, and having been there for such a long time actually gave me that feeling and of uh, allowing me to, to spend so much time on something, gave it a, a kind of a complexity and a maturity, I hope. Yeah, but sh sort of showing up as a quasi-outsider or, or more than a tourist. Like there's one series, it's like a circus, uh, I believe. Uh, I'm not sure where this is, uh, what region this is in, but it's about halfway through the book. And yep. uh, uh, where, is, where is this circus? And that circus is in uh, Karakalpakstan in western Uzbekistan. Yeah, it's beautiful. I, I love these photos. And it, 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 it does, you have a, it, it does really give the viewer... A different perspective than 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 uh, that that you were just describing. There's there's a kind of an intimacy, but there's still uh, th there's still some you know you're at the back of the room f photographing through I guess the crowd watching the the the, the circus at, at one. But it sounds like it looks yeah. like a kind of a crazy circus. I have to say, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a small provincial circus that traveled. You know, they spent sort of six or seven months of the year traveling around uh, Central Asia. And um, there is actually, and there's also a passage of text in, in the in the text part that goes with it. It's just uh, a paragraph or two, yeah, yeah, um, okay. right towards the end of the book. So there is a narrative description of the event, but again, it's not uh, it's not linear. So our guest today uh, is Ivan Siegel. We're talking about his book, which book set of books, which is called White Road, published by Steidel, a book of photographs and a book of uh, text. And you know, I have to say that it, it seems like there's a real melancholy that, at least for me, running through both. I think the the, the text and the photos. And I got you know I I, got, I had to ride in a car once from Bishkek to Alma Almaty. Mm -hmm. Which, uh, but it was late at night, and uh, so I, I have a, a few memories to, to draw on. But is is it is this melancholy something I'm I'm, I'm connected to? Perhaps the, this post ideological uh, field or direction that you end up going in, or 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 do you do you think that's a fair to to say that there's a melancholy in, in a lot of running? Oh, I, I think it's fair to say that. I mean, uh, there's it's 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 possible to draw all sorts of larger. Um, uh, kind of larger implications or meanings out of that, the, you know, the, the social ideas about the loss of an ideology or the loss of a, a state or of a nation and what uh -huh. that might mean. But I think what I was trying to do was to give you a sense 
the reader and the viewer a sense or a feeling of, of what it means to live in a transitional society or a state in flux. And um, just to uh, noting as a, a very simple example that in, in that there's massive uh, migratory movements out of Central Asia in the past 15 or 20 years. So something like uh, one-sixth of the, top of the working population of Tajikistan are, are guest workers in Russia, for yeah. instance, which is you know, just a tremendous movement of, of populations for that country. And that at the same time as I'm traveling in this way, everybody else around me is also moving, seeking economic opportunities, seeking a, a new way of, of living or, or of being. And, but rather than describing that uh, as a social phenomenon, I'm trying to give you an emotional sense of, of, yeah. of what, that might, what that might be. This last sequence uh, seems to involve uh, some folks uh, doing some kite, some kite flying. Mm -hmm. And then there's one particular photo where I, I can't tell if it's a kite or a rock. This is the angry guy. Oh, it's a rock. It is a rock. That's, that's in Kabul. That's in Afghanistan. And that is the, uh, the Afghan version of the, the uh, shot put. It's the rock throw. Um, but yeah, but yeah. the pictures before that are, are of kite flying. And um, what's kind of curious about those pictures, of course, is that they are, they are taking place in a, in a cemetery. Uh. So if you look at the ground, you can see that everybody's running all over graves. Uh. So we just had uh, Fred Richin on. I don't know if you, you heard some of that, but he was talking I about did. the difficulty we have with images, or images have today, tr you know, how images can resonate. And I'm, I'm really curious, having just put, you know, s seven years of your life into a book of images, what, what, you, what your thoughts are and the questions he's asking. I think it's, uh, I think that in some ways the question of, the loss of our ability to make an iconic image is 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 interesting, but it's not necessarily something to fret over because, you know, and in a way, maybe it's positive. Um, you know, the iconic image actually requires something. It requires a transgression. It requires that there be a, a moral or ethical boundary that's crossed. And to, so to say, as as Fred did, that there are no there are no iconic images from the Afghan war. That's true. There, but there was an iconic image from the Iraq War, and that image is, of course, Abu Ghraib. Um, and that image is iconic not because it's fabulous necessarily, but it, it's because it's transgressive. It's because mm -hmm. it's of the way it was made and uh, the fact that it, it's breaking all sorts of moral codes. Um, and I think that uh, it's important for us to think about how we use images in the context of story or of character, or how they mean, how they, how, the, how making them and sharing them is, is almost like a practice, um, and, and in some ways that has, that's less about uh, this kind of large transactional mass media world in which the mass media has these very strict moral codes that it can, that has to obey. So, the question of whether or not we can show dead American soldiers, that's a moral code that we put on ourselves, but that's not, and that's. And then there's the whole transactional element that's part of the commercial trade and imagery. But there's another way of treating images, which is through friendship, through partners, through communities in which images have context. And maybe they aren't epic, but they might have more specific meaning for the individuals involved. And they require a set of, they, they acquire a particular or different kind of responsibility to the people that are making them or that are in them. Yeah, yeah. You know, but listening to, to his thoughts on, on new, new ways of combining images and metadata and information and text even, and then, you know, coming back to where we started with talking about you choosing to release this book of images and a book of text, it does seem that, you know, uh, you, did, you did think of how I would have these both on the couch, but that, you know, just from the wonderful experience I had from just trying on my own to combine the two, were, are there, is there like an online version that perhaps may have w been easier or even had more, more reach to try with this? Uh, there isn't yet, but I'm thinking about how to do it, and uh, I have a bunch of ideas um, including potentially a, 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 a voiceover of the text mm. over the words. Uh, it's just been a matter of time and managing, you know, not enough time in the world to, to get everything done. No. Um, but there are a tremendous number of interesting projects of kind of different ways of telling stories and different uh, using digital media. And uh, different. Um, one of the things that I'm really interested in is how we appropriate earlier technology, technological practices, 
So the idea of the archive, the idea of the map, the idea of um, the, the idea of a scroll or other kind that that are not necessarily digitally native, and how we adopt them to a digital platform, or whether there really there is the possibility or the reality of a digitally native um, visual yeah. storytelling project. What would that look like? It's is it is it networked by default? Is it made by the people who are in the network so that there's not one creator? Um, so there's a, there's a whole world of experimentation around around those issues or combining those different kinds of aesthetics. So there's a, a beautiful film that was made last year um, in Canada called Bear 71 that was a combination of mapping and um, uh, mapping and uh, video huh. that, in which the video are the video are actually uh, Captures of wildlife in a, in a in a Canadian national park, and that are that are combined on a map, and then there's a second overlay of narrative. And I highly recommend finding it online. You can watch it for free. It was paid for by the National Film Board of Canada, and it combines all of these ideas in a very interesting way. Yeah, but as, as exciting as all this is, though, I'm I'm you know really curious to ask you because you just got to make a uh, an actual beautiful book of photographs use, with one of the greatest. Uh, publishers of photography. So, and I, I know you went to Germany. You participated in the process. I mean, are we really ready to st for this to go away? I mean, it seems like you've just made it to where, like, you know, photographers have dreamed of of going for for you know decades. I, I, I hope it doesn't go away, and and I don't think it's necessarily an either or question. I mean, I. I, I was I feel tremendously lucky to have been able to participate in the process like this, to have made a book uh, like this at this level of quality, and and I certainly hope that we continue to value this kind of thing as a, you know mm. as a society. Um, but I also feel like there's no one we can have both. There's no reason to of course to say that just because we lose, just because we. I also think that there's what what it really does is it clarifies that some some ways that we use pictures don't need to be on paper. Some pictures are temporary, like you know, Snapchat. Some pictures um, need or acquire a permanence because they have a larger context mm. and they tell a story. And and maybe we should think of pictures more about more in the way that we think of words, rather than as you know as a practice and rather than as an occupation. Well, Ivan, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I've been dying to talk to you about this, this book for a while. Uh, I, I, it's really, really special. And, uh, I, thank I, you. I think the two uh, books, you, you might not be able to do it on the subway, but <laughs> 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 it, it's possible to make it work. So thanks again. The book is called White Road. Books are called White Road, and it's published by Steidl. Thanks again, Ivan. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this week's Too Much Information. Uh, very special thanks to our guests, Ivan Siegel and Fred Richin, and to Andrea Salenzi for helping out, as always. And you can listen to all of the archives on the TMI page at WFMU.org. And if you're missing the old, weirder version of Too Much Information, you can find my other podcast at toe.prx.org. Stay tuned for Nerd Wars up next.
You're listening to WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, in Rockland County at 91.9 FM, and online at WFMU.org. The National Weather Service has issued a flood warning for the following county, Somerset, New Jersey, effective until 11.39 p.m. this evening. Stay tuned. Nardwar, the Human Serviette radio show, is coming up next, right here on WFMU. Listening to WFMU, and it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard right there, Heru Migoa by From Iceland, Thor's Hammer. And today on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with From Iceland, Sigur Ross. Plus, a brand new interview from 2013 with Jello Biafra, Iceland's Sigur Ross, and San Francisco's Jello Biafra. Today on Denardwar, the Human Serviette radio show. To get you ready for Sigur Ross, here's some more Thor's Hammer, vintage 1966 Icelandic rock and roll with the Big Beat Country Dance. And in an interview with Sigur Ross, and in an interview with Jello Biafra, all on the radio station known as WFMU.
are you? Uh, my name is Yonsi. Yonsi, who else is in Sigur Ross? Gorky. Me, yeah. And Ori. Hi. Welcome to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Thank you very much, sir. Right off the bat, to welcome you to Vancouver, I thought I would give you something that you love, Yonsi and Sigaros, some iron. Maiden. <laughs> yeah. You love the Maiden, don't you? Yep. And this particular release, check it out, pull it out, it's actually an Iron Maiden picture disc. Check this out if you pull it open. Ooh. That's really nice. Oof. I think I don't have any picture disc. So this is, I think, I, maybe I used to have some picture disc. Yeah, this is what I was wondering. Have you thought of doing a picture disc for your own band at all? Yeah, we are actually talking about it earlier for this album, doing a picture disc. And Everybody you, loves picture disc. You do, and turn over another picture on the back as well. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so what was your first Iron Maiden experience? Did you experience this album live at all? Uh, no, yeah, I saw them. They came to Iceland once, I think, and I, I went there. I think I was 16 or something. My first album was Killers. Amazing album. What do you think about old technology? Like, for instance, I noticed Tuck, it was released on cassette in Indonesia. <laughs> Did you know that? Probably not by us. <laughs> it was on EMI. Oh, really? Yeah. EMI released Tuck in Indonesia on cassette. Isn't that incredible? That's really cool, actually. <laughs> that wasn't too long ago, was it? Really? Yeah, no, it wasn't. It probably still is. 